Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us at Conversations at the Carter Center. It's wonderful to see so many people who share our passion about the issue of government openness. I'm Laura Newman, Access to Information Project Manager and Assistant Director of the Americas Program at the Carter Center. It is my pleasure to welcome you all this cold and windy evening to Conversations. This series provides us an opportunity to engage the community in current events and the work of the Carter Center around the world. We are glad that all of you are here tonight and would like to especially welcome students from the North Cobb School for International Studies and Piedmont College, Carter Center guests, neighbors from the Atlanta community, and particularly guests who have come for the Carter Center's International Conference on the Right to Public Information. Tonight, we are on the eve of the opening of our conference, where over 120 government, civil society, media, private sector, and donor representatives from 40 countries around the world will gather to consider the advances of the right to information, the impact that information and transparency has on the lives of our citizens and the communities in which we live, and the challenges that lie ahead as we continue to promote the human right of access to information. It is our belief that through gatherings such as the International Conference and conversations at the Carter Center, if we can move forward the right to information and balance a healthy dose of secrecy with the fundamental right to information, if we can move it forward even this much, we have the possibility to change the lives of millions. Our panel tonight will share their experiences regarding the negative effects of secrecy and how the right to public information actually protects people better. And with more information, our governments and citizens can make better decisions. We will explore the fine balance between appropriate secrecy and its abuse. After our panel's initial remarks, we will give you all an opportunity to ask some questions. I encourage you to write your questions for the panel on index cards provided to you as you walked in tonight. And volunteers will walk down the aisles and collect your written questions. At this time, I would like to invite our panelists to the stage. We have tonight Tom Blanton, Michelle Roberts, and Kevin Dunyon. I'll go to the farther one. Tom Blanton is a director since 1992 of the independent non-governmental National Security Archive at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Winner of the George Polk Award in 2000 for piercing, self for piercing self-serving veils of government secrecy. He is series editors of the Archives Web, CD Book, and Microform publications of more than 500,000 pages of former government secrets obtained through the Freedom of Information Act. He oversees the Archives' 34,000 wow, Freedom of Information Act requests to date with the U.S. government, and he filed his first FOIA request in 1976 as a journalist in Minnesota. His books include White House Email and the Chronology, his articles and op-eds have appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and many other publications. A graduate of Bogalusa High School in Louisiana and Harvard University, 
He won the 2005 Emmy Award for News and Documentary Research and was inducted into the National Freedom of Information Hall of Fame in 2006. He is a co-founder of FreedomInfo.org, the virtual network of international freedom of information advocates. After Tom, we will be joined by Michelle Roberts, who is an investigative reporter at the Oregonian in Portland, Oregon. She has written several award-winning pieces about the state's mental health system, including a series that exposed abuses at Oregon's oldest psychiatric institution that led to its planned closure. Before joining the Oregonian in 1998, Roberts worked as the lead crime reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times. She has a bachelor's degree in journalism from Arizona State University and a master's degree from Northwestern University at Medill School of Journalism. Roberts was part of a team that won the 2007 Pulitzer Prize for breaking news reporting. And our last speaker before questions will be Kevin Dunyon. Kevin was appointed as the first Scottish Information Commissioner in 2003 and has recently been reappointed by the Scottish Parliament for a further final term of office. He is responsible for ensuring that, over, that all 10,000 of Scotland's public authorities, which range from the Scottish Government to individual general medical practitioners, comply with the Scottish Freedom of Information Act. In three years since the Act came into force, he has received over 1,500 appeals. He has issued almost 600 formal decisions. And he will tell us a bit about the Scottish experience. Uh, he was educated at the University of St. Andrews and the University of Edinburgh. Prior to becoming commissioner, Kevin's background was in the voluntary sector, at firstly international development and then environmental campaigning, on which subjects he is the author of a number of articles and books. He is currently writing a book on freedom of information. So I just want to say thank you to Laura and to the Carter Center and to all of you all for coming out on this evening. It feels like old home week for me because uh, I was born right down the road in Greensboro, Georgia, and my mama went to Agnes Scott College, right just a mile or two away, and my daddy went to Columbia Theological Seminary where they studied the original secret. And that was the secret of what was it exactly on that tree of knowledge that was going to change the fate of humanity. And remember what happened when Adam and Eve actually went and ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Their first instinct was to hide their nakedness. So this business about secrecy we've been struggling with for a very long time. And actually I would argue tonight that Adam and Eve were probably the last people who could answer yes to the title of tonight's program, Are We Safer? with secrecy. The rest of us, I would argue, are not. And I would just say, Laura had asked me to talk just briefly about the history of our secrecy system um, and why, even though we're at record-setting levels of government secrecy today in our country, I'm still an optimist about it. And so I'll just tell a quick story or two. The, really, the foundations of our secrecy system in this country were built during the Manhattan Project when they were building the atomic bomb. And a general named Leslie Groves took a voluntary self-censorship program invented by scientists and turned it into this massive apparatus that we know today that has background checks and investigations before you can get a clearance. Once you have a clearance, safes and briefcases manacled to couriers and tempest controls on computers and this system costs $7 billion today, at least the part of it 
that we know about. There's another part that's probably several billions more that's classified. And General Groves' son asked him, why did you need all that secrecy? About, what is it, 10 or 15 years later, he's writing his memoirs. Why did you need all that secrecy? And Groves' answer, I think, gets at the heart of our problem, the balance between what's an appropriate secrecy and what's not. And he said, well, it's obvious. Number one, the Nazis. We didn't want them to get a bomb. Number two, the Japanese. Gosh, we're at war with them. Don't want them to have a bomb. Number three, the Russians. They were our allies at that point against the Nazis, but we didn't want them to get a bomb either. Number four, our allies. Well, this starts to get more interesting. We don't want our allies to know about the bomb. Number five gets most interesting of all. He said, the Congress and other executive agencies that might come mess with our project and mess with our budget, which goes right to the iron law that has driven bureaucratic secrecy throughout human civilization because secrecy is about power and about control of the debate. And he went on and said his, another reason was the staff, so that you could control these unruly scientists. And this mixture of motives, I think, has driven um, a process that's led us to where we are today, which is a, uh, we have record-setting secrecy in our country, and we have record-setting openness in our world. And you may think this is a contradiction, but it's not. It's actually just a paradox. And it's what makes me optimistic, ultimately, about how we're going to change things in our country. The record-setting secrecy, a friend of mine named Peter Gallison, who teaches history of science at Harvard and did a book about Leslie Groves and the atom bomb, and he called me up a few years ago and he said, how many secrecy decisions were there last year? I said, funny you should ask, because we broke the all-time Cold War record. This is about 2003. 16 million classification decisions by the U.S. government in 2003, a new all-time record, and it stayed up there ever since the last three years. We have this chart, and it goes you know, up in the 80s, down in the 90s, the decade of openness, I've written about that, and then back way up now. It's not just that the current administration really is committed to secrecy. It's not just that we've got a couple of war, wars on. It's not just we have a huge growth of the national security apparatus. But you basically have this iron law of bureaucracy going wild right now. So 16 million classification decisions. And this scientist said, so how many pages is that? I said, well, I don't know. You know, in the computer age, a single decision might be 100 computer screens. He said, oh, that's, I, you know, I, I'm not going to assume that. Let's just assume 10. I said, okay, you're a serious scientist. You're just going to go assume it. You're not a historian who's going to go try to find out how many pages is it. But he assumed it. 10 pages per secrecy stamp. 160 million pages a year going into the vault. And then he called up the Harvard University librarian. And he said, how many pages came into the Harvard University libraries last year? All the books, all the journals, all the newspapers. She said, oh, about 30 million. He said, you mean there is four times as much going into the vaults as there is going into the, one of the leading repositories of human knowledge? It shook him up, and he called me up. He said, you know, I always thought of this secrecy business as the little safe over in the corner that you kind of stuck the couple of sensitive items into. But now I'm understanding that the safe over in the corner is bigger than the Library of Congress. It's bigger than the sum of human knowledge today. And, and it's a problem. I said, what, why is it a problem, Peter? He said, well, I'm a historian of science, and this flies in the face of everything we know about the progress of human knowledge. What do we know about the progress of human knowledge? Well, that humans learn things by publishing their results, getting their peer re peers to review, putting out a hypothesis, sourcing their footnotes, 
open dissemination of information. Peter says to me, how can the government possibly keep us safe if that's their information system? They don't share it. They don't show their footnotes. They're stuffing it in the vaults. There's a need to know. How can they possibly make good decisions? Well, that's the core question today. There's a new book out that looks at the 9-11 Commission that investigated the attacks of 9-11. And the headlines have been about contacts between Karl Rove and members of the Commission. But the real story is in the middle of the book, and it says 9-11 could have been prevented. And it says 9-11 could have been prevented not by better CIA penetration of Al-Qaeda, not even by the FBI knowing the hijackers were living in San Diego, not by better signals intelligence or more spy satellites in the sky, but by publicity. And that's the phrase. It was buried in the 9-11 Commission report, but this book actually expands on it. Publicity. They arrested the Minnesota flyboy. Remember the guy at the flight school in Minnesota in August 2001 who didn't want to learn to take off or land. He just wanted to learn to fly a really big airplane. And that made the instructors suspicious. And the report found, and this new book shows, that if there had been publicity about that arrest and about that set of suspicions, the hijackers themselves would have called off the plot because alerts would have been around. The FBI guy who earlier in that summer wrote a memo saying, watch out for these crazy people in the flight schools. There's something suspicious going on here. Maybe they would have connected the dots. What's interesting about this is what might have saved us was our openness not our secrecy. Or the other examples that I've given many times before, the Unabomber terrorized academics and mathematicians and scientists for a decade, blowing off people's legs with letter bombs, and they didn't catch him until they actually published his screed in the newspapers. And his brother in Lake Park, Illinois, opens the newspaper at the breakfast table and says, gosh, this sounds like crazy Ted. Better call the cops. And they did. And they caught him. In this new open world, you've got 70 countries, Scotland, a new Freedom of Information Act, people pushing to open up their files, Mexico, which probably has the best implemented new Freedom of Information law in the world, better than ours. Phenomenal pressure toward openness, but what ultimately is going to turn around this record-setting secrecy, I would argue, is that the system itself our own security is going to depend on us becoming more open, not less. So I'm going to leave it there. I'd love to hear your questions, and I'd love to hear what Michelle and Kevin have to say. Thanks, Tom. First of all, let me say what a pleasure it is to be back at the Carter Center. I was a fellow here for the Rosalind Carter Fellowship in 2004 in 2005 and have felt a lot of support for the work that I've been able to do in mental health coverage. Um, as Laura mentioned, I specialize in writing about how government programs serve the poor and disabled. And tonight I've been asked to discuss how secrecy affects the welfare in our communities. Let me start by going back a few years. In 2002, I used public records to unearth an important story. I learned about 67-year-old Corrine Reed. She was a mentally ill woman who starved herself to death in an adult foster home in a small town in Oregon. The woman died after suffering for months under the daily watch of a state-paid mental health 
caseworker whose training consisted of a weekend conference in Las Vegas. I uncovered the story while investigating complaints about Oregon's public mental health system. I found lapses ranging from neglect to delayed treatment that had contributed to the deaths of at least 94 people, such as Corrine Reed, during the previous three and a half years. Today, under newly enforced federal and state privacy laws, I, would n I never would have been able to find Corrine Reed, whose death I learned about through state open records law nor would I have been able to find enough of the other 93 cases to verify the trend that was at the heart of my story. And without that story, it's unlikely that state authorities would have moved as quickly and decisively as they did to enact reforms. Since then, in the, year, the just few years since then, secrecy has made it much more difficult for me to do my job. In recent years, citizen access to public records has been swiftly declining at every level of government. It's a dangerously anti-democratic stampede by lawmakers and government agencies all too willing to exploit privacy concerns and post-9-11 fears to put a lid on the public's right to know. In Oregon, where I live and work, citizens are rapidly losing their right to obtain information about their local about what their local and state governments are doing. Oregon, like many other states, passed anti-secrecy laws in the 1970s. Since then, lawmakers have quietly passed hundreds of exemptions. Many appear minor when considered alone, but taken together, they condemn open government to death by a thousand cuts. Much of today's secrecy, though, is on a massive, outrageous scale. Let me give you an example. After I wrote about the 94 deaths in the community mental health system, my, edit my editors and I decided to turn our attention to the Oregon State Hospital in Salem. For those of you who don't know, that is the very state psychiatric hospital where the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was filmed in the 70s. Keep in mind, I was only asked, when I tried to employ the same open records laws in investigating the hospital, that I'd used to uncover the deaths in the community mental health system, I was met with stiff resistance. Keep in mind, I was only asking for generic information about abuses and incidents, not the names of patients, and no certainly nothing about their medical records. State officials told me that even though they'd provided me with that same kind of information I was asking for less than two years earlier, they said they would no longer do so. Lawyers for the state cited the newly enforced provisions of the Federal Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. That's a mouthful. Even though the intent of the act was to, pr to protect a person's private medical record, something I wholeheartedly support, the state used the act as an excuse to deny me records that had nothing to do with a person's private health, health record. Citing privacy concerns of the patients, the hospital refused to turn over anything but short, highly redacted reports detailing cases of abuse and neglect by state workers against the adults and children who lived inside the decrepit 125-year-old psychiatric hospital. Frustrated, I went to the courthouse to see if any lawsuits had been filed. Indeed, they had. I found a lawsuit filed by Mary Kay King, a 29-year-old woman who lived in the Oregon State Hospital's youth ward from ages 12 to 18. During that time, she was molested by two state psychiatric aides. 
She sued the state, alleging that the hospital and its then superintendent had ignored a long-standing pattern of abuse of patients on the, on the adolescent ward. But even the public court file was shrouded in secrecy. Key documents in the case, including references to at least 13 other child sex abuse victims by psychiatric aides, would never have become public, but a transcript of a closed court hearing that should have been sealed was instead filed accidentally with other public records in the case. Among those records was a transcript of a courtroom discussion that indicated that the state sought privacy, secrecy, to protect the reputation of hospital administrators. I also discovered that the state of Oregon agreed to settle the case for $300,000 and had paid Mary Kay King an additional $50,000 to promise that she would never talk publicly about the case. After I wrote about the sex abuse of children on Ward 40, only possible, remember, because a clerk had misfiled some documents, the state announced that it would close the children's ward and move every young patient to safer community-based mental health care. After the children were removed from the hospital, nearly 800 patients remained, however, so my job wasn't quite done. What about them? What was their story? I went straight to those the state said it was, quote, protecting. The adult patients at the hospital. Cold calling, ward payphones, I interviewed nearly 400 of the hospital's total census count of 800. I told patients that the state was not cooperating with my efforts to inform the public of what was happening inside the hospital. While some patients did not want to share personal information, a vast majority enthusiastically told their stories because they desperately wanted their voices heard. They almost universally said, state officials aren't protecting us, they're protecting themselves. The patient sent me photographs, letters, medical records, and numerous other documents to tell the story. The articles that resulted highlighted problems such as the hospitalization of patients who no longer needed to be there, the storage of thousands of former patients' ashes in corroding canisters stacked on shelves in a storage room in the hospital, and the need to replace the 125-year-old building, which was infested with rats and insects and deemed likely to collapse in an earthquake. The patient's willingness to speak out paid off. Shortly after the stories were published, the state of Oregon, backed into a corner, announced that it would begin plans to replace the state hospital with new facilities. But that wasn't all. The U.S. Department of Justice visited the hospital after one state legislator called for an investigation after reading about the hospital's problems in the Oregonian. She hadn't even been fully aware of everything that was happening there. Secrecy laws had kept her out, too. The Justice Department investigators spent days inside of the institution. Oregon officials are finding it hard to hide in the name of patient privacy these days. In January, the U.S. Department of Justice issued a 48-page report that found pervasive civil rights violations at the hospital. It documents patient-on-patient -patient assault, multiple suicide attempts by patients who were supposed to be on one-on-one -on -one care, improper use of seclusion and restraints, and dangerous medical practices. The list goes on and on. The Justice Department has warned state officials that the U.S. Attorney General may indeed sue Oregon to correct the deficiencies. The point is this, we are not safer with secrecy. 
not in our homes, not in our communities, and not in public institutions that promise to care for the most vulnerable among us, especially not there. Um, I think I might depart slightly from my two previous contributors by saying that I think that there is a case we made for secrecy. I think there's an acceptance in all FOI regimes that the nation, the community, or an individual is better off with information not being disclosed. And accepting that puts a huge onus, therefore, upon the authorities and those who hold the information not to abuse their capacity to withhold information by arguing that it's better for all of us. Uh, and I want to explain from my position as a commissioner who has to hear appeals and to determine whether or not information should be released, the kinds of pressures and arguments that are put to me as to why information should not be put in the public domain. And my concern, on the basis of, of three years of experience and, and thousands of appeals, is that authorities too readily simply assert that serious harm is going to come if information is released, and then therefore expect, as a default position, that a kind of precautionary approach will be taken by people like myself, and the information will not be released. Uh, and in my view, therefore, there are threat of dire consequence to try to bludgeon rather than, rather than persuade people like myself to withhold information. I'm going to set out three case studies of, of recent experience in, in my country. And in each of these cases, it was asserted that if the information was released, it could lead to, in one case, the, a potentially lethal risk to public health. In the second, it would risk vigilante attacks upon sex offenders, uh, driving them underground to commit offences again. And in the third one, uh, cause patient care to be seriously undermined if information was put in the public domain. Yet, as you'll hear, in each case, I ordered that the information should be released. And I've got to try to get myself in a position to explain why could I overturn the views of government officials, senior police officers, and senior medical experts. Um, I'm none of those things. Um, but it seems to me that when looking at the kind of claims being made on behalf of secrecy, you have to have some kind of filter mechanism some kind of antenna which tells you that you think this is not going to fly. Um, I look to see, first of all, is the claim overstated or far-fetched? Secondly, is it testable? Is there something I can do to see whether or not similar information, for example, is in the public domain and the harm hasn't come about? Thirdly, is the harm inevitable or could it be readily mitigated by doing something else alongside of the information? And finally, and perhaps most tellingly, is there some other potentially more obvious advantage <coughs> to withholding the information? For example, avoiding uh, the discomfort to senior politicians or, or embarrassment to them. If you use those four tests, I find that, in my experience, it takes you a long way in beginning to overturn the claims made by those in authority. The first case study I'm going to give you is a kind of post-9-11 spasm in, in my country, where a journalist, uh, in fact, all of the requests I'm going to talk about came from journalists. They're real nuisances, by the way, Michelle. <laughs> um, and 
This journalist, who, who I know very well, an environmentalist, had asked to see the contents of a file called uh, Radionuclides in Drinking Water. And if essentially the information contained within it was what would happen in the event of a, either an accident or terrorist attack on a nuclear power station which could cause contamination of the public water supplies in our country. Uh, and the government official who dealt with it absolutely blankly refused to give out the information. And when I asked him to explain, he, and this is a quote from the decision that I issued, um, I said, a notable feature of this case is that the government has suggested that release of this information may have dire consequences. It's said that release could constitute an offence under anti-terrorism laws, that it might harm national security, and it could even be misused in a way which could be lethal to the public. I think with a statement coming from government like that, the expectation is that simply I would just close the file and give them the benefit of the doubt. But my same decision says... After considering the nature and the content of the information being withheld, I found that not only these highly worrying claims are overstated, in fact, it's not possible to find any justification for them at all. And that was quite simple, because what I did was to say, I'll look at the content of the, of the file, and then go on and see if I can find anything else similar to that information. And I did. I found... Uh, handbook called the UK Recovery Handbook for Radio Radiation Incidents, and it was published in 2005, the same year as this information request, in fact, slightly after it, by the Health Protection Agency, the government department responsible for establishing whether or not we could deal with these kinds of consequences. And the handbook deals with things like uh, alternative sources of supply, how you could treat uh, water which has been contaminated, what are the doses that uh, individuals could cope with if they were adult, if they were pregnant, if they were children. And in my view, it was quite inconceivable that if this information was in the public domain, that the degree of harm that was being suggested that would come about from the release of the radionuclide file could ever have uh, actually come about. I ordered release of the information so far as I know, there's been no terrorist attack on the water supplies in Scotland. I think I probably would know. And, um, and the government haven't actually challenged my decision. The second is to do with registered sex offenders. If a sex offender is, if a, if a person's convicted of a sex offence, they go into a, a, a register. And the police keep tabs on those registered sex offenders. And journalists regularly ask for information about the numbers of sex offenders in any one area. This is a local journalist who wanted to know information about the numbers of registered sex offenders in his county, the county of Lanarkshire in Scotland. And the police, again, absolutely refused to give it out, arguing either that there would be vigilante attacks upon the offender, and it drew my attention to, with copious evidence of, of, of some of these attacks. And secondly, if the, if the offenders felt they might be identified and therefore could be subject to attack, they might go underground and therefore could commit uh, subsequent offences um, without being uh, caught. Again, I felt this was just simply uh, unsupportable. The police forces do release statistical information in Scotland and they release at a police force level. We have eight police forces in Scotland. One is for Strathclyde with 2.2 million people. One is for Dumfries and Galloway, the smallest police force, with only 148,000 people in that county. 
Um, it, it made no sense to suggest that this somehow was, uh, you, could, you could release information for 148,000 people and 2.2 million people, and the degree of risk was the same. And it seemed to me simply a convenience for the police to release at the level which suited them, which was the police force level. I was able to establish that uh, Lanarkshire is actually bigger than Dumfries and Galloway, bigger than a police force area. And secondly, that the police in England had released it down to sub-county level, half a county, uh, and no attacks had taken place. And that furthermore, these very lurid accounts that the police had given to me had occurred only when the name of the individual was issued with a description, a photograph, and an address. Quite different from releasing a statistic saying 45 sex offenders in an area with 150,000 people. So again, I, I didn't support the police and ordered the release of the information, and there's been no attacks on sex offenders at all in Scotland. The final case is the only case I've ever dealt with as commissioner, which has given me a sleepless night. And it was where a journalist asked the following question of the health service in Scotland. Please give me the name of every surgeon in Scotland, what their specialism is, which hospital they, they are attached to, how many operations have carried out, and how many patients have died following these operations. And just as straightforwardly as that. I came under enormous pressure. Of course, it was refused. I came under enormous pressure from the medical practitioners in Scotland, from the head of the Surgical Audit of Mortality, from the head of the Royal Colleges of Surgeons and the Royal Colleges of Physicians, as well as from the, um, the medical officials within the government, not to release this information. And they pointed out quite correctly that nowhere in the world has that kind of data been put into the public domain uh, if it's not been corrected for the complexity of the, of the operation. For example, are you dealing with an accident, an emergency, or an elective procedure? Uh, and they were concerned that, and they claimed, that if this information was released, that at the, at the best, surgeons would cease to cooperate with the audits which are carried out of their performance, and we would not know, actually, if there were bad surgeons, if this information was put out there. And at worst, surgeons would actually withdraw from carrying out the very difficult procedures which are often necessary when a patient's life is in danger. And I've seen actually the same arguments made here in the US, uh, where at a much smaller level, uh, information has been requested. I looked into it in great detail, and I came to the conclusion that I was going to order the release of the information. And the arguments I made were as follows, that some information has been released worldwide on surgical performance, admittedly not for all surgeons, often just for a specialism, and sometimes it has been corrected for the complexity of the operation or the condition of the patient. But I've not been aware of any league tables being compiled of those surgeons. And secondly, I really felt that this was a bit of the nanny state. I really felt that people could understand the difference between a surgeon dealing with the, uh, the most difficult, most radical procedures and those who were dealing with elective cosmetic surgery, for example. Patients and people understand that. And thirdly, there's a whole media out there, and they're not all going to be stupid and fail to put this into context and fail to explain uh, what is the, the issue at hand. But nevertheless, I, I was concerned. I ordered the release. Uh, the release took place. 
And I woke up next morning and there was no headline saying Dr. Death, worst surgeon in Scotland. There were no league tables. All of the information had been put into context explaining exactly why some doctors might have uh, more deaths than others. Uh, and now the National Health Service in the whole of the UK has decided to publish this information as a matter of course. And Scotland is the first country in the world to produce um, unadjusted surgical mortality data. The final point I want to make is to go back to a point that Tom made. Is that I was able to demonstrate that we were not safer with secrecy. I think, in fact, though, that in these case studies, the argument can be made that we were safer with release. We're certainly safer with the release of the details of radionuclides and drinking water. The issue in Scotland is not about terrorist attack. The issue in Scotland is that we're about to consider having a new generation of nuclear power stations. And all of the incidents that have happened in Scotland have been a result of accident or operational failures. And we need to know whether or not, in fact, we're able to cope with uh, further releases into the environment and what are the weaknesses of our contingency plans, which this government file uh, illustrated, to make a sensible, informed choice. We're safer with release. And in the case of the doctors, notwithstanding all of the complaints they made to me, I'm convinced we're safer with release there too. Hospital record-keeping is shambolic in Scotland. One of the reasons they didn't want to release information was that they couldn't be sure the data was complete or was correct. Well, there's no doubt that the release of the information has certainly caused them to shake, shake up their records-keeping procedures because they have to make sure the doctors have got the right numbers of deaths attributed to them. And secondly, we have had instances in the UK of terrible errors we made in hospitals covered up by the medical profession and coming to light only after campaigns by parents and by patients. And that would not be allowed to go unnoticed. A blip in the number of deaths in Scotland could not go unnoticed by the release annually of this data. So my conviction is we are indeed not safer with secrecy, we're safer with release. Thanks, Laura. Thank you to all of our panelists. We're going to take as many questions um, as we have time for tonight. And I'm going to start with the first one. And anybody, please feel free to jump in. It was pointed out earlier tonight that the process of secrecy was not the government protecting citizens, but really the government protecting itself. It seems that any legislative response would be difficult and unlikely, given that governments sheathe themselves for their own protection. What can be done externally to lead to openness if the government it's, cannot help itself? It's a great question. We're going to be debating it for the next three or four days, I think, here at the, at the Carter Center Conference. Um, Kevin's a great case study. The Mexico implementation is another great case study. Uh, it reminds me of the old joke, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb has to really want to change. <laughs> and government has to want to change. And one reason that the Mexican implementation was so good was because it was a transition from a 70-year one-party state with a new government that intended to make a mark. And openness was probably the only mark it could make. And they had, but I, I am reminded of the comment, I think it was an Australian uh, senator who got a reform bill passed on freedom of information. He said, in the early days of a new government, he said, we better pass this quick because after a fortnight, the new government will have its own secrets to protect. Right? And so there's a, that's one of the reasons we've had so many new freedom of information laws. 
but we're really talking about a kind of cultural shift that human beings have been engaged in about their governments for hundreds of years. And it's from the attitude of government that kings had. When kings said, l'état c'est moi, it, the information belongs to me, the state is me, it's mine, to an idea that we still haven't yet achieved, but which we aspire to, which is the government belongs to us. We're the government. That information they hold, it really is ours. And they better have an identifiable harm that would come from a release. And they better have a process that gives us rights in administrative appeals and commissioners like Kevin to intervene and challenge those arguments. They better have some kind of balance. They better have a process. That's what we're trying to get at in these freedom of information laws. But at some point, you have to find people inside the government who want to release the information to get on your side. They can be in the courts. Uh, this morning, a congressional committee held a hearing on the missing email at the White House. Now, my group, the National Security Archive, has a lawsuit to try to get courts to intervene and force them to put back an archiving system that we won in the 1990s but has been gotten rid of by accident or by forethought. We don't know yet. But the Congress is looking into this. Congress legislative branches have a role to play. There's also a phenomenal organization here in the United States called the American Society of Access Professionals. And it's professional freedom of information officers inside the government who created their own professional association and invited people like me to come harangue them and talk about what it feels like to be on the receiving end of a freedom of information request that takes 15 years to be processed. And yet, that group was seeking a variety of goals higher professional standing, better salaries, bureaucratic advancement, recognition within their own agencies, and better relations with their customers, fewer lawsuits under the Freedom of Information Act. And so that process of professionalization holds great hope, I think, for this kind of change we're trying to create in governments all over the world. Something to add to that. Um, I think the question actually spun off something that I said. Um, when I wrote about the um, secret settlement agreement in the Mary Kay King case in the Oregon State Hospital, um, the, the person who actually signed off on that settlement agreement back when he was Attorney General is our current governor. <laughs> so there was actually a, a few legislators who were so outraged by this in the in in our session that they introduced a bill that passed unanimously and that ironically the governor ultimately signed to um, make it um, illegal now in Oregon for any, um, whenever the state settles um, a lawsuit, those all have to be public from here on out. So there are, you know, there are bright lights of hope, you know, even within government, people who want openness. I think the problem we have with um, most Freedom of Information Acts is that, of course, they all have exemptions, and a remarkable number of exemptions are about protecting the process of government. Um, they're not about ensuring fair justice uh, or even improving national security. So the Scottish Act, for example, exempts, not absolutely, but has an exemption available for uh, information which is about the formulation of government policy. 
we've got an exemption which, if it's going to harm the relationships between the government in Scotland and the government in the rest of the UK, the information can be withheld. We have one for the uh, protecting collective cabinet responsibility, which is that incredible thing whereby ministers can argue amongst themselves, but having come to a decision, they, they present a united face to the public. And I really struggle with that as a commissioner, because I'm being told that effectively it's in the public interest to lie to the public, which I think is a really strange thing to, to, to suggest. Uh, and, and the third one is a, complete, a fourth one, a complete catch-all, which says information can be exempt if it would, not, if it would affect the effective conduct of public affairs, a kind of catch-all. And our government has really tried to push the boundaries of the Act by suggesting that that means, for example, all advice by civil servants to ministers can be withheld, and would argue that any memo they send to minister contains advice. So in other words, carry on business as usual and don't release anything. I've ordered tons of information to be released. They've taken me to court in Scotland and they lost heavily in court uh, where the court said, no, you cannot class information like that. It's to be on a case-by-case -case basis having regard to the content and the possible consequences of the release of that, of that information at this time. Um, so it's a, real, it's a real difficulty. It seems to me that one of the problems in the US and some other countries is if you don't have commissioners who can actually act as a court of appeal and um, having commissioners who are sympathetic to the intentions of the legislation, then you do struggle. And of course, it's important that the courts are there to, to back up the commissioners and I have my decisions can only be appealed to the court. And that's made an enormous difference. But I couldn't pretend for a minute yet that the culture has changed in, in government in Scotland. I think we're, we're, we're making progress, but it's, it's, been, it's been hard fought so far. And we're all susceptible to a new government coming and is simply rolling over a commissioner or rolling over the Act by, by changing the legislation. And we've seen that in Ireland, for example, quite, quite badly. It seems that the lack of transparency in government to preserve safety and prevent panic could lead to misrepresentation of information. What sorts of implications does this have for overall safety? Is there any action being taken on this front currently? There are debates happening right now. Um, th this question really goes back to the original, I think wasn't it a Supreme Court dicta about uh, the limit on free speech is you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, you can't create mass panic and that's a limit on speech. But I think the instinct today, and particularly in, after 9-11, and Michelle mentioned that too, is just reflexively to make things secret. Oh, that must be dangerous. We should withhold it. There was this interesting case, uh, much like the ones Kevin cites, where there was a massive scientific database, a genome database of all the known pathogens, potentially useful in bioweapons development. And the U.S. government went to make it classified said, wait a second, you can't leave that information out there in the public domain because it'll help some terrorists to construct a pathogen. Well, that's true, but that's not the end of the inquiry. A National Academy of Sciences panel went and looked at this and said, blue ribbon scientists, and said, wait a second, but if you classify it, you're going to make our defensive research so difficult to do that you're going to actually do more damage to our security from keeping all these genomes secret then you would hinder a terrorist in terms of their ability to produce um, a pathogen. So it's the problem with the secrecy system, I think, in so many countries, our own included, is there aren't an, 
the inquiry stops at sort of one level with the government saying, oh, there's possible harm. But it doesn't go to the next level the way Kevin's described his thought process of, well, then, but is there some other interest that outweighs that harm? Or is that harm actually real in, in our current circumstance? And so the challenge is building those questions constantly into the system. It's like the old bumper sticker on the back of the car that I remember, I think, from the late 60s, early 70s. It just said, question authority. <laughs> it's not a bad thought. I think the issue of misrepresentation, which is what the question is about, it is an issue for, for many in government and, and have, again, a paternalistic view that you, know, you shouldn't be frightening the public by putting information out there and frightening them unnecessarily. Uh, and the, the point I keep making to my government is that when, when you're asked for information, there's no law which says you give out only that information and nothing else. You can choose to put more information to the public domain. You can choose to put it into context. You can choose to explain to the public what this information actually means rather than simply slavishly confining yourself to what is exactly being requested of you. And that contextualization is part of the, the proper discourse between those who are in authority and those who are subject to that authority, which is effectively explaining themselves. And I'm no doubt we'll come on to at some point the issue of trust, but governments always sell to themselves and to the public the idea of FOI being about increasing trust in the public and then profess a huge degree of disappointment that the public have become less trustful as a result of freedom of information, which suggests somehow that FOI has been a mistake. Well, I always say two things. One, you know, you've got a couple hundred years of mistrust to make up and we've had only three years of FOI. <laughs> and secondly, we're not doing this all one-sided. In, in the UK, we've had the dodgy dossiers, you know, with, uh, with government officials sexing up the reasons for going to war. And my counterpart in, in England today has ordered the government to release the cabinet papers of the discussions at cabinet level about the Iraq war. I mean, a truly monumental decision, which, you know, drives a, a coach and horse through the government's expectations of what would happen with FOI. But it's driven inexorably by what is in the public interest. And the government has taken us to war and not given us an adequate explanation for doing so and indeed has been, has been found to be wanting in the explanation that it gave. And it is in the public interest for us to know why it was we're committed to this expensive and extremely damaging uh, enterprise uh, and what was actually in the hands of our cabinet officers when they came to take that decision. That's what FOI is about. Do you fear that less information will actually be captured in documents as more people are requesting it? Or that you'll see, as we've seen in the United States, where information is going to be deleted, thus taking away our historical memory and the reasons for decisions like going to war? Kevin, what do you think? I'm told that that's the case, but luckily I've read all of the background documents of this Carter uh, conference that we've got coming up next few days, and according to the academics, there isn't any uh, evidence uh, of this. Um, and certainly that's not been my experience in the UK either. I'm told that the discussions go on around the water cooler, but we've had years of SOFA government in, in, under the Blair administration, and he's criticised heavily for that in any case. Look... Complex decisions cannot be done entirely orally. Secondly, a lot of the information which is actually being uh, released is the, frankly, the ephemera of emails which should never have actually been committed to paper in some instances because people are really sloppy about emails. They have technical information and information which is far too intimate to be going into government emails in my experience. 
when I do my memoirs, I must actually dig out and keep some of these um, for, for that purpose. Um, I, and thirdly, the idea that, and I'm a historian in, in my first degree, the idea that we'll lose this information to history is just not the case. The information, in any case, will often have been deleted before it goes into the government archive or will go there for 30-odd for years and never come back out again. My view quite simply, this is a matter of management, and I speak to the Permanent Secretary of the Scottish Civil Service when they make this claim to me, I said, John, this is your job. If people are not giving decent advice to ministers, they're not writing the advice down, if they're not giving it to colleagues, then it's a management problem, not an FOI problem. You sort it. You can set out the, the, the Civil Service Code, you can set out the terms of reference for people's jobs, and you can say what a civil service job is, which is to record things and to give advice in good faith and in detail. And, and to my mind, it's easily sortable. May I just say a good word for email? Because <laughs> I did a book of White House email from the Reagan years because of a lawsuit we brought to save that email. And I do think for historians, ultimately, that information revolution is going to save our history, ultimately. From the Reagan White House, which had the earliest email system in the White House, there were about 250,000, uh, 200 to 250,000 emails saved from six years of that system, from 82 to 88. From the four years of Bush 1, about another 200,000 emails. But then, from the eight years of Bill Clinton, about 32 million email messages, and even today, just the missing emails, we, we're told, is between 5 and 10 million, but that's 5 and 10 million, that's about a quarter of a total universe that we're told is about 50 to 70 million emails. And it's Kevin's point, you can't run a government on a wink and a nod, even though many officials would like to. You have to give orders. Even if they stop taking notes in the Oval Office when they brief the president, they have to come out and give the order to somebody. And these days, it's by email or by cable. And that stuff can survive electronically in multiple user areas. And it'll be searchable and retrievable by us, I hope. And from a reporter's perspective, um, emails are invaluable to study because they're not always official, like, you know, the official word that comes out. And there's a lot to be learned from reading in between the lines and you know, a lot of our state officials have become really hip to the fact that we're all over their emails. And so recent requests have come back with, um, let's talk about this in person. <laughs> and that's really troubling to me because um, it just, I mean, that says something also. Well, the next question, just to preface it a little for Kevin from Scotland and for some of our colleagues from abroad, there's a election going on in the United States right now. And this is about the democratic debate. Um, what this questioner is asking, he's saying, or she, that throughout the democratic debates, there's been little talk from either Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton on their plans with regards to the Patriot Act. And they want to know what you think of these two democratic candidates and what they should, not about them, but what they should do with regard to the Patriot Act, particularly the sections that encourage secrecy. There have been some specific questions to both the candidates, uh, and actually I'd just throw in John McCain in this too, because McCain has actually also made a real commitment to transparency of whether it's earmarks or political financing. I suspect that whoever is elected president after November, there will actually be some significant change. 
I think Senator Obama has probably made the most uh, of this cause. His signature issue in Congress, the two pieces of legislation he's passed, have been about open government. He passed the bill with Senator Coburn of Oklahoma that meant to put all federal contracts on the web so that you could see where federal spending went. And so he's talked a lot about this necessity. And then Senator Clinton, when asked directly, well, what would be your first priorities on your, you know, she said, I'm ready from day one. So he said, okay, what would you do on day one? And she had a very interesting answer. She said two things. One was she'd haul the generals in to talk about how we're going to get out of Iraq. And the second is she would repeal all the Bush executive orders that were about civil liberties and secrecy that had aggrandized too much power to the presidency. So you have a very interesting, uh, McCain has talked about what he would do in terms of opening up funding as well. But it has been a part of the Democratic debate on the campaign trail. And I think that whoever is the new president, there's going to be major change. What would you suggest as corrective actions upon officials, departments, or administrations that have an unhealthy attachment to secrecy? Have Michelle <laughs> write about them? <laughs> you know, the, our Congress almost passed an Official Secrets Act the, in the year 2000. I mean, the United States won the Cold War without an Official Secrets Act that would send officials to jail for leaking secrets. But almost passed one in 2000, only to be vetoed by President Clinton on his way out of office, and then brought it up again in 2001, and it was about to pass, and it was actually going to come to the committee on September 4th, 2001. And if it had been on the floor of the Senate, I think on September 12th, it might have passed. But a whole bunch of newspapers in Florida editorialized about it. And the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee was from Florida. And he came back from Labor Day break and he read his news clips and he said, wow, this is a bad idea. I don't want to be this secrecy senator. Just this past summer, a senator from Arizona, John Kyle, held up a bipartisan Freedom of Information reform bill. And until the Arizona Republic ran a series of seven editorials calling him Senator No, Senator Secrecy, and there was coverage. Here we are. We're an open society. The way you change things, the way you change officials' minds, is you cover it, you write about it, you talk about it, you debate about it. But I'd be curious, looking at it from the inside, Kevin, <laughs> whether your decisions have been internalized at all by the officials whom you're ordering to release documents. It's going to take time, I mean, hopefully not a long time, but the Official Secrets Act in the UK is over 100 years old. And let me just explain how we got the Official Secrets Act. It happened at, when Britain was in negotiations with Germany and Russia in what led to the Treaty of Berlin. And the British government, unbeknownst to the Germans, was in secret negotiations with the Russians and concluded a secret treaty with them on the eve of the, the Congress taking place. And unfortunately for the British government, this information appeared the following morning in a British newspaper. Uh, and the government was absolutely embarrassed and horrified by this and ordered an inquiry. And it turned out that a relatively junior civil servant had passed the text to the journalist of the newspaper. I told you journalists are real, real troublemakers, Michelle, really, really. <laughs> and um, he... The government were determined to make an example of this man and they were determined to, to bring a prosecution against him. 
uh, but he couldn't establish what the prosecution should be for. He hadn't, of course, taken the official treaty, the, the original document, and given it. He hadn't stolen it. What he'd done, he'd memorised it and come out and written it down and then passed out the transcript to the journalist. And so, incredibly, the government took the civil servant to court on a charge of stealing civil service notepaper, which was the notepaper on which he'd actually written out the document. And even a Victorian jury uh, didn't convict him, and uh, he's called Charles Marvin, so Charles Marvin was, was, um, was released. Um, but as a result of that, the government brought in a piece of legislation called, interestingly, the Breach of Official Trust Act. That was the, the first one, and that became, prior to, I think, the First World War, the Official Secrets Act. So we've had official secrets for nearly 100 years in, in, in the UK. And so there is a mindset to be changed. But it seems to me it kind, of, it kind of feeds on itself. There's a power basis to knowing information. And the fewer people who are entitled to know that information, the more powerful you are. So this kind of idea of, of filtering information. I sat in a government body one time, which is looking at, advising the government, looking at the effect of fiscal policies um, which might improve the environment. And a subcommittee was set up of this, for which I was excluded because I was an environmental campaigner. And the subcommittee decided it was going to report to the government in secret, not even telling the rest of the committee, because I was on it, because this information was just so sensitive. And I said to them, are you completely mad? Do you believe that this information is so sensitive? There'll be a run on the Bank of England if, you, if your information goes into the public domain. And they really believed it could actually have some, do some damage. And yet now in Britain, the Bank of England, when it does meet in committee, it meets in public. Although it doesn't meet in public, its decisions are known about. The voting intentions of its members are knowing about. This is unthinkable, even five or six years ago, that we'd actually have signals as to what's going to happen in the budget and signals of what's going to happen in terms of, of um, monetary policy. So I think things can change, but often it does need the, a shock. Governments are really bad at planning ahead. They need to actually have disaster to actually force their hand. So I do think it's a case of, of being forced to release information causes a complete rethink. And I hope with what's happening now in the UK, certainly, uh, that that's going to happen. Uh, particularly with this issue of, of the information about the Iraq war coming out in the cabinet papers. What is the danger to requesters? You talk about the great requests that you've made and that you've received, but in some countries, isn't there great danger to people just simply by asking for information? I think you'll hear stories in these next couple of days of people who have taken their lives in their own hands. A friend of mine named Ivan Pavlov runs a great non-governmental group in St. Petersburg in Russia who challenged a monopoly on information, a, really a privatization of the National Bureau of Standards. And so they would charge $10,000 a month just to get a copy of the equivalent of the standards for local businesses. So he brought a legal action under the Russian Constitution and won. And the next day was beaten up in the streets and put into the hospital with a concussion. I mean, those stakes are very high. Huge amounts of money are at stake in corrupt economies all over the world. Journalists that we know and work with in the Philippines have been shot for challenging governments in this way. Um, I think, you know, in that, in that context, the complaint that I have, that my hair has gone gray from waiting for 15 years, actually seems a little silly. I'm willing to wait. I'm willing to wait if after 15 years we can get the CIA's family jewels and find out that they were 
you know, surveilling journalists without warrants and have Stephen Colbert on the Colbert Report say, gosh, if Brit Hume had known he was being surveilled, he would have, he was a national security risk, he would have tortured himself and get right to the heart of the problem. There was a great piece on NPR earlier this week about, it was kind of set up to be a humorous piece about new Iraqi journalists asking questions. And the questions were coming in <laughs> just in circles and, and very lengthy and almost in some ways not understandable. But the context of the piece was is this is the first time many of these journalists have been welcomed and asked to ask questions. And so there are, is great, a lot of them are experiencing a lot of fear, um, just getting back to your, your question. And um, so I just thought I would throw that out there. At a far less dramatic level, um, I've been asking people in Scotland who've not been using the legislation, including some of my former colleagues in the voluntary sector, why are they not using it? Uh, and they have actually said that they are often in receipt of government grants for their voluntary sector work, and they fear that they may actually jeopardise their funding if they cause trouble by invoking the freedom of information legislation. Uh, and others I've spoken to, including in trade unions and others, they actually do think that it might make relationships difficult, that they've got good relationships with some government officials or public authority officials, and that by, again, forcing them to go through the FOI Act of formally responding to the request and informing the right of appeal if they don't get the information and so on um, may make it uh, difficult to maintain good working relationships. I, I think this is a mistake, to be frank, and I think it's not just on the side of government but on the side of the public to say this should be a matter of course that when you, when you ask for information, you should expect to get a proper response in time to get the information you get, and if not, to be told of your rights of appeal to commissioner, without somehow that actually being seen as being a, an offensive request to make and an unreasonable expectation upon the public authority. But still, that is the case. I'd like to actually ask a question about the culture. Um, and I know in some of the work that we do in the Carter Center, we, we get the opportunity to work in Africa. And in working in one of our countries, uh, we met with a gentleman who was very enthusiastic about the right to information, but then reminded us that that would only be for men. Because in their culture, they, the man has to protect women and children. And by giving them information, it could be quite, quite scary. And we read as well in some of our briefing materials for this conference um, of, in Asia how asking somebody for information could be uh, against the idea of face saving. So is this a westernized notion? And if so, how do we de-westernize it so that it functions for all citizens? I don't think it's a westernized notion. And actually, the best freedom of information process I've ever personally seen was in a little village in the west side of Rajasthan in India. And you've been there. I was with you. Uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Where in an almost completely illiterate population, the activists had worked their own connections to get the local muster rolls of the money that had been spent in that village. And they held public readings, in this one case at a hospital, readings of what were the snake vaccines that had been shipped to the hospital and why was the hospital now saying to the people none were available. 
what was fascinating to me about this whole dynamic was not only the folks who had been frustrated by not having vaccines or the folks who had been turned away at the food ration shop were there, but also the ration shop owner was there and the doctor was there, and they stood up there and talked about how they had been jerked around by the central state administration, how it was the Rajasthan State Health Ministry that had messed up the delivery of vaccines and so there were only a handful there and I'm a doctor and I'm being paid nothing and so what do you expect me to do? I'm going to obviously sell a few of them because I don't have any other way to make a living and I've got mouths to feed too. And you had this fascinating dialogue which actually got to the predicament faced by the officials as well as the predicament faced by the requesters and I think stretched all of our minds. I don't know if that totally answered the question, but I, didn't, I don't see this as a Western process, but one that is fundamentally about power. And it seems to me in every society all around the world, this question of power, its accountability, its, its scope of its impact on, on human beings, that this struggle is a constant. I think you're right. I mean, I think that um, I've seen it similarly in, in, in Nicaragua, the Cara al Pueblo kind of process where government officials have got to face the people, and, and I've seen it in India too, and usually it's about um, spending and what's been claimed to have been spent on behalf of the people and what the people experienced. So if the government says we've, we've sunk 50 boreholes, and people say, well, where have you sunk those boreholes? And you certainly haven't sunk it in my village, but my village appears on this list. It's that degree of what I call public audit, not being carried out by the Auditor General, but being carried out by citizens, a kind of citizens audit, and, and particularly in India, they're fantastic at that. However, as a, a note of caution, I am concerned a little bit about whether or not a Freedom of Information Act, as opposed to a, a regime, is a badge of good governance which unlocks money from Western sources, and therefore governments are signing up to that. And I was in Malawi um, last year, and they've got a a, a very radical proposal for freedom of information, which I think is quite frankly unworkable full stop, and certainly unworkable in the current circumstances in Malawi. Because and of the administrative base or the... They have no, they've, they've got no records keeping system whatsoever. Um, they have a, a, a large number of, of languages and the Act promises to deliver information in any language at the request, but not got the capacity to deliver that information. Um, they've got problems with literacy in terms of, of, of delivering the information as well to people, so they'll accept requests orally, which very few countries manage uh, to do. And, and my concern is that they've been encouraged on that route in the belief that this might actually be helpful to them to get more money without actually having any mechanism whatsoever on the ground to deliver on that. It's not to say they can't have an FOI Act, I'm just concerned about what, what they expect to do with it. So I would be concerned if it was, a, if it was being pushed by the World Bank or IMF or, or uh, international bilateral donors as, as something to tick the box to get more money. Although I would argue that it is a fundamental human right. It's not just a procedural matter, I think, this right of access to information. But that's a, so a another, another discussion to have, yes. Right. And one that we hope to have over the next few days here. Um, this question is asking about transparency or information before decisions are taken. All of the cases that you gave are relating to uh, information post 
facto after something has happened. And the question here is, in those cases, can't the openness actually generate more cost, make the process uh, more lengthy, and in fact negatively affect governability and uh, efficiency? In this case, isn't it better to be secret? I would argue that our, our experience in the United States is exactly the opposite. And it goes to Kevin's point about capacity. The freedom of information law came about after decades of experience with an archives law and a records law and a federal register. And then in 1946, we got this right of notice and comment under administrative procedures. And the whole idea there was government had gotten so big during the New Deal and World War II especially. And it impinged on so many parts of life and it was having such a regulatory impact one of the regulations that went all the way to the Supreme Court turned out not even to have been officially promulgated. Um, and so they created a legal statutory framework to give interested parties the opportunity to comment, to be noticed, to be told that something was coming down the pike so they could weigh in on it. This is the philosophical basis for environmental impact statement. And to me, it's just it's a common sense process that the people who would actually be affected by the governmental decision ought to, on a moral plane, have the right to know about it beforehand and have some input into it. That's at a moral and value and democratic governance basis. But I would argue that the American experience shows there's also an enormous efficiency gain. You come out with far better decisions. If you have more information, you have more interested parties at the table, if you have the give and take. And I think that's what this process of notice and comment, environmental impact, has actually led to far more rational government decisions than the arbitrary ones that can take place in secret, say, for example, invading Iraq. I think one of the problems that, that certainly I felt as a commissioner and, and looking at our legislation, and similarly for my counterpart in England, is do you give any space at all for a thinking process to go on in government or to go on in public authorities. And to a certain extent, I can understand entirely what would be good about having all decisions made in the full glare of public scrutiny. It would mean that daft ideas weren't being circulated. It would mean that people were uh, up to speed with what may be happening to them at some near future date without it becoming a surprise and can prepare for that and it might be a much more inclusive process. However, the reality of government, of course, is that they want to be able to take a decision informed by those very daft ideas which might be choked off by uh, FOI. So if a civil servants, our civil servants are deliberating and debating and one raises the prospect of something, what the governments don't want is that single thing which might be outlandish and have absolutely no chance of happening to have that put into the public domain and to frame the debate and enormous amounts of political and, and financial energy spent trying to make it clear that that's not what's going to happen and the actual debate is happening on some other issue. So I've been reasonably sympathetic to the argument that, that email exchanges in real time should not be released um, and should be released uh, perhaps uh, after the event, but not necessarily whenever anybody asks for the information if the decision is still being deliberated upon. And I think many of my counterparts as com commissioners and ombudsmen have had, had a degree of sympathy for a notion of good governance. Now, maybe, it's still, maybe we are still far too cautious and still prisoners of, 
of the notion that we're actually um, taking power away from government and need to leave them with something. Um, but for the moment, that's where I am. Michelle, this question is for you. Um, why did your editors, or how did you convince your editors to give you the space, the time, and the resources to do these incredible investigations? Well, that's really why I got into this business, and I presume that that's why my editors got into this business, um, to right wrongs where we can find them. And um, it didn't take much convincing. I have a really supportive editing team, and there were some tense moments, but... Um, no, they, they're very supportive. Where did their culture come from? Why, how did they get to be so <laughs> supportive? For them. Well, I mean, I, I think that, you know, a lot of it just, a lot of the work just built on itself. You know, when we started doing the first investigative series, you know, after we finished that, we just kept getting incredible response put out there. And I think that excitement that we were able to actually play a role in the process and actually make lives better, you know, made all of us feel good. And, you know, anyone who knows how newspapers work, I mean, it's, it's a lot of hard work behind the scenes by not just the reporter, but by the editing staff as well. So they were really my co-partners in this. So to explain why it was not difficult to convince them. They were just right there alongside me. That doesn't always happen, but it happened for me. Kevin, is the problem with public officials that they are risk averse and so will classify information instinctively? I think they will uh, classify it instinctively. I think, two, but stepping back from that, we have a long, set in the UK, a long civil service culture and they feel that FOI is trampling all over that. For example, the culture of the civil service in the UK is that you serve the government of the day. And when the next government comes in, you serve that next government as faithfully, without any change in the civil service. And that means, therefore, the advice that you've given to previous ministers, by convention, can never be asked for by the next minister. So a Labour minister can't ask to see the advice that the senior scientist has given to the Conservative predecessor. Um, and that is meant to protect the, uh, the impartiality and the loyalty of the civil service. And of course, FOI tramples all over that because FOI is retrospective. So any information of any age can be released. And, and what these civil servants have said, for example, about a road building program which encouraged it to go forward, and the same civil servant is now giving advice against the road, road, road building program because that's what the new government wants uh, to happen. They feel embarrassed uh, by that. Secondly, and perhaps very practically, and with some sympathy for the guy in the radionuclides, is that they've got to answer FOI requests in 20 working days. I can take a year sometimes to investigate a really difficult case. So I've got plenty of time to go away and look on the website and speak to experts. They've got 20 days, and the 20 days default position is, if they're fearful, is no. Because what's the worst going to happen? It's appealed to me, I do all the work, and I order the release. Two things, they've bought time, and it's not their responsibility if, if it all goes wrong. It's my responsibility. <laughs> so, of course, the natural inclination is to say no. Have you had the same experience dealing with civil servants in the U.S.? It's not just, I think, risk-averse. It's that there is a core of real secrets. And this, I think, we would agree. There are some things, personal privacy or design of a nuclear weapon or whatever, that are real secrets. 
The problem is where the line is drawn around those real secrets. Uh, we have a couple of interesting data points. We just had the 9-11 investigation. Governor Kane and Lee Hamilton <clears throat> said afterwards that 75% of what they saw, looking at our most recent Al-Qaeda, bin Laden, counterterrorism, CIA stuff, 75% was classified shouldn't have been. We had the great example of the Pentagon Papers case where the Solicitor General of the United States stayed up all night with a pile of assertions by the government, a hundred different assertions of drop-dead national security secrets. American service people would die if any of these hundred things came out, were allowed to be published. And he wrote a secret brief to the Supreme Court that's now been declassified because of our Freedom of Information request, in which he reduced that pile of a hundred to 10. I would assert that's about the correct ratio of real secrets inside the large universe. And then about uh, 15 years later, he wrote an op-ed piece saying actually even the 10 weren't really secret. No damage was really done. But if you start with a the core, there are some real secrets. There are some real privacy interests. There are some real governmental interests that need to be protected. There are some real secrets. But then you add to that the iron law of bureaucracy and the sort of knee-jerk reflexiveness, whether it's the 20 working days on the FOIA processing end or just the stamping the computer screen secret on the front end, and you have a system that goes really out of control because all the incentives currently are for the secrecy. I think we have time for one more question, and I think this is a great one to end with. I'd like to ask all the panelists, what do you feel that ordinary citizens can do to demand more openness? Michelle? <laughs> Demand it. <laughs> Read the newspaper, get involved, um, you know, write letters, just get involved and, and demand it. Kevin, what would you say? Yeah, I would, I would say the same. I think that particularly if you've got an FOI Act, uh, use it, um, make the request, and if you're told no, ask why not. It's the second stage that's really important. It's not the initial request that's often very important. It's questioning the decision of those in authority to withhold the information and causing them to have a, a second look. And if you have an appeal process of any description, I think there are some in the states, Connecticut and so on, it's got some, um, then, then use that. Because without the precedent-setting nature of the kind of decisions that I'm able to take and to publish, we're not going to move the culture on. And I've learned a lot from looking at decisions by commissioners and Queensland and Australia and in New Zealand and, and in Ireland and hopefully people are looking at my decisions and, and those in the UK. But we can only take decisions if we've got the feedstock of appeals coming to us from concerned citizens. And the vast majority are indeed coming from ordinary individuals who are activists in the communities, not from vested in large interests. So we depend upon people like you. I would echo that and add to it. On our website at nsarchive.org, there's a form letter you can fill out to file a FOIA request. All you have to do to write a freedom of information request in our country is reasonably describe the records you're after. We spend a lot of time doing our research before we file a freedom of information request. We try to get an exact date of the meeting of the president with the head of other, the other head of state and say, oh, well, we want the briefing memo going into that meeting. We want the talking points for the meeting. We'd like the transcript of the meeting afterwards. And we'd like whatever directive came out so you know there's a trail. You can make a request. It's a very simple thing to do. It requires a little research up front. It requires a little persistence in the middle. 
because you can wait for months or even years, but it's worth it. And it requires just a cultural change among all of us because we let the government act on our behalf, but the government should not be our nanny state. It should be um, accountable to us. And we have to step up if we want to see our governments become more open and push it, push them to become that way. Thank you. I'd like to thank our panelists for taking the time to be with us tonight and also thank all of you, our guests, for your interest in learning more about the right to public information. Um, there's more information in the lobby at the Carter Center if, if you'd like that. Also in the, lab, uh, in the lobby is a sign-up sheet for our conversations at the Carter Center email list. Feel free to sign up uh, for this list if you're interested in receiving occasional updates on events, the first chance at reserving seats for upcoming events, and also to hear about new events at the Carter Center. The next program in our conversations at the Carter Center series is called Assessing the Prospects for Political Reform in China on Wednesday, March 19th. Uh, and I'd just also like to add to this that China has recently passed an open regulation, Government Regulation Act. And so we're excited to have some Chinese participants with us here at this conference. And panelists at that event will include Mary Brown Bullock, President Emeritus of Agnes Scott College, and visiting distinguished professor of China Studies at Uni Emory University, Professor Fei-Ling Wang of Georgia Institute of Technology, and Professor Yahweh Liu, Director of the China Program at the Carter Center. And reservations are currently being accepted online at www.cartercenter.org for this event. I'd like to thank you again for joining us, and particularly to our three panelists, Tom Blanton, Michelle Roberts, and Kevin Dunyon for traveling to Atlanta to enlighten us with some of your thoughts. And we look forward to seeing the rest of you in March. Good night. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.